revelation that comes through your teaching of your word. We pray for the Holy Spirit to give us understanding that he would open our ears to to hear the spiritual truths of your word and that, Father, you would move in our hearts and stir our lives from it so that, God, we would be changed, not like in the book of Revelation where they ate the scroll and it was their hunt, it was honey, but God, it has, as they digested it, it became bitter to the stomach. Father, the truth of your word is like honey to our lips, but Father, the weightiness of it can bring a change in our lives. And so we just pray for this tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. The subject is the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, again, I have slides up there. You may be able to see them. You may not be able to. You can change seats if you need to because um, I'm going to use the chart, but we're also going to use several text um, uh, scriptures. If you have one of the syllabus study guides, a lot of this stuff is already in there. So let's get started. The scripture in Proverbs 23 and 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. The Hebrew word for heart is the inner man it's the inner person it is the soul and spirit of every one of us okay whether you're male or female we use that terminology inner man because that's what the terminology the bible speaks of and it speaks of the soul and the spirit and the soul is made up of three different parts it is made up of the mind which is the intellect it's the part where we think it's the will and that's the area that we choose we make choices and then it's the emotions, and of course, that's where we get our feelings. And the soul is different from the spirit. They're both eternal. The spirit is who we are. The soul is made up of the intellect and the mind and the emotions. Those do not ever stop because we are, we are told, again, of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, <coughs> um, the rich man, uh, and when he died, he was aware of his surroundings. He was talking about how hot it was. He asked, Jesus, he asked uh, Abraham if somebody could just dip his finger in water and bring it to his tongue. So he's aware of all those things. His awareness does not die when you, when you die. So when we use heart, when we speak of soul and spirit, we think they're interchangeable, but they are in essence united, and yet they're very distinct, okay? The inner man is the control tower it is that part of us uh it is the center of god's knowledge in our lives the bible speaks of building up the inner self the inner man that is within us and so from the heart man chooses their own destiny a person chooses their own destiny they either choose eternal life or they choose eternal death they make their own choice how many times have you heard somebody say well if a loving god was really a loving god he wouldn't send anybody to hell God never sends anybody to hell. He simply fulfills the choice that a person makes here on earth. And so today, always in the present tense, we are programming our future for eternity. A lot of people don't realize that. that they, re they think that if we just hang on and get through this life, when we get to heaven, everything's going to be great. But heaven is is if i don't know how to put it this way but because it's going to sound strange but heaven is eventually going to be down here on earth 
And before that, there's going to be a thousand-year period of time in which we're going to be on the earth and having governmental positions and, and ruling and reigning with Christ. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So this is why this lesson is so important for us to understand. Because for those of us who are born again by the Spirit of God, we're in Christ. The Holy Spirit is programming us to harmonize with the divine plan of God, not just here on earth, but also in the future and time to come. We are being groomed, if I could put it that way, for the most intricate and sophisticated system that we have ever seen before. And the key is... When Jesus, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, he told them, pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. And so God has a kingdom and it's coming to earth. And he says, you're going to be a part of it. So that needs to be your prayer. God, I want your will, your purpose, your plan for my life. And so we must, everything we do basically is planning for our eternity. I know it sounds kind of strange. I know when I was young, my parents talked to me a bit about saving money and savings accounts. It seemed like I had forever to do that. And, uh, but can I tell you, forever is not forever in our lifetime. It, you know, it's Once that time is gone, it's gone. And so the time that we have right now is uh, a, a planning and preparing for what God has for us in the beginning. And the only works that are going to matter, the only things that are going to matter in our life here on earth are those, I'm going to use the word ministries, but those works that we send on in advance. And you're going to see that in the scripture. And when I speak about, I'm talking about eternal value, things of eternal value. You can go to the flea market and you can find you an antique, but that's not going to heaven with you. Okay, that value is going to be stay here. In fact, somebody else is going to get it. There's certain things that the Bible speaks about that we do that goes on before us, and that's our, how we spend our time, how we use the talents and abilities that God gives us, uh, the ministries, the prayers, the worship, all of those things. So in Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can I tell you that probably 90% of the time that verse is, is quoted backwards. You'll hear people say this, where your, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, because your heart will follow your treasure. You say, well, Jesus is the treasure of my heart. Well, if he is, then that's where your heart will be. So, But Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Revelations 14 and 13 says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. I want you to see that last part. I've underlined it on the slide. And their works follow them. In other words, when he's saying when we die, he says there's something that we're doing now that's going to follow with us, okay? 
Let's look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 to 17. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that the, in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. What he's saying here is that in the beginning of the ministry, when he left, um, departed from Macedonia, he said, None of the churches, none of the groups that I've started, none of the places where I, I have brought the gospel shared in any way financially. And he said, except for you. Okay, that's what he's talking about. And then look what he says. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again from my necessities. So isn't that interesting that Paul went where God sent him but it was necessary for God to speak to people to be led of the Spirit to send supplies or food or finances or whatever it was. He said necessities. Even in Thessalonica, he said, after I left you, you heard my situation and you sent aid to where I was, okay? And then look at this last verse in verse 17. It's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So notice he says the things that will follow them. And then he says, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account, that goes into your account. He's not talking about money account. He's obviously thinking of an eternal account. So in the scripture, uh, let's skip that chart right there. There are judgment seats that are revealed. And let me show you on the chart these two different judgment seats that we're talking about. Last week we talked about the rapture of the church. We talked about the res first resurrection, those of the dead, and those of us who are still alive at the last trump. You remember the trumpet sound? And that we were being caught up together in the air. And this is here where the judgment seat of Christ takes place. This seven-year period of time takes place, and then a thousand years when Christ comes back on earth, he is here on earth, and it is after this 1,000 years where Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and that afterwards he is loosed once more to try to deceive the nations, that he is cast into the lake of fire, and those who have not been raised at this point will be raised at this point at the judgment seat of Christ. So there's basically 1,000 years, a little more than 1,000 years that separate this judgment seat from this judgment seat. This is the judgment seat of Christ, those in Christ, of the righteous. This is the judgment seat of the wicked. So there's two different judgment seats, and they're for two different purposes, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. So 1,000 one years separates the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. So let's define these judgment seats, okay? The great white throne judgment, that's the one at the end that I just spoke about. It is found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, and this judgment takes place after the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, and then the judgment seat of Christ is after the rapture of the church during the seven-year period of tribulation on earth. We don't know exactly when it takes place. I think it's very, fairly soon from that time as when we get there that we stand before God and give an account. 
And this judgment will take place in heaven after the rapture of the church. Both judgments will take place in heaven. I said it this morning. Every religion will get you to heaven, but only one will let you stay there. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? So they're all going to get to heaven. They're all going to see and experience heaven, but only one group's going to be able to stay there. And so last week we noted in Luke 21, verse 34 through 36, that the Bible says that there is a great tribulation coming on the earth, and Jesus said to pray that you might escape it because he said anyone on the face of the earth is going to suffer the, the destruction and the wrath of God on the earth. And he said the only way to escape it is to stand before the Son of Man, which would be the rapture of the church. So after we are raptured, the church is taken from the earth, um, and after that has taken place, we are going to stand before God and we are going to give an account of our lives, the believer's works in our lives. That's what we're being judged for, not our sins. Can you say amen to that? We're not being judged because of our sins. We're being judged because of our works or our, our works are being judged since coming to Christ. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. That, that's gone, okay? But when you come to Jesus Christ and you surrender your life, you say, Lord, I'm yours. And he said, good. Now I have a plan for you. And the time and the talents and everything else that he's given you, you and I are going to give an account before God for a specific reason. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But let's look at three passages of Scripture that particularly deal with the judgment seat of Christ. Now remember, this is based upon our works and not our sins. All right? Romans 14, verse 10 through 12. He says to this, he says, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show your contempt for your brother, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now, it's, it's very clear. It's very plain. He's writing to believers there. And he's saying every one of us is going to give account of ourselves to God. All right? Second passage of Scripture is found in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. And it provides the basis for the judgment. So first we're told that we're all going to stand before God. There is a judgment. Then he tells us the basis of the judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He said, for we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether it be good or bad. The basis of the judgment will be our works, the things that we have done. Now, a lot of people say, yes, but it's not by works that I got saved. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about after we have received salvation, which was a free gift because Christ paid the price, he paid the way that we could come to God, he says, once I've given that to you, he says, what are you going to do with the time and the talents and the abilities and the finances and, and, and everything else that you have, what are you going to do with them? 
And you remember the stories of the talents? And we'll see that in just a minute. But he, he says some, want, some was given ten, some was given five, some was given one. It's not how many, it's what you have done with it. And you're going to see that over and over and over again. So it's not our sins that's being judged because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleanses us from our sin. God's forgiveness is always there. He who confesses our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's been settled at the cross. That's done. Our sins are, are under the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's not a matter of our sins that will be judged, but it is a matter of our works. And you say, what is, what is that all about? It has to do with rewards. Now, usually when I say this, I see people roll their eyes like, I could care less about rewards. Then you don't understand the purpose. And this, we'll get to that at the end of this lesson. Believe me, rewards are important. All right? The third is the most detailed passage there is, and it's in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given unto me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another builds thereon. But let each man take heed how he builds thereon. In other words, he's saying, I've laid the foundation for your spiritual walk through Jesus Christ. I've taught you the truth. Others have come, and they've added to that foundation, but it's you that's got to build on the foundation. All right? He says, so take heed how you build. Then he goes on and says, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if any man builds on the foundation gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and stubble, each man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it is revealed in fire, and the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. Okay, so he's saying, when you build, you're going to be building in spiritual value, basically he's saying eternal values and temporal values. Eternal being forever and temporal meaning temporary. Okay, He's, he, he likens it to gold, silver, and precious stones versus wood, hay, and stubble. And he says, and when the fire of God is put to it, those things that are precious and of value will last. The wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned up because he says the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. In other words, you're not going to go, but oh God, that was really for you. I did that for you. Just the fire of God is going to consume it. And if there's anything remaining, then it'll have been for an eternal purpose. If it's gone, it's gone. Okay. And then look what it says. If any man's work shall abide, which he built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So what Paul is saying through verses 10 and 11 again is that the basis of this judgment seat of Christ is based on our works. Notice that he says, he says, you'll suffer loss, but you're not going to lose your salvation. He says, it, in other words, he's saying, you're going to find that all the time you spent on things that really had no eternal value, he said, all that's going to be gone. And you, you, you don't have time to do it again. You don't get a do-over. There's no Groundhog Day in heaven. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, that's just not going to happen. So he says, it's going to be gone. You're going to suffer loss. But notice what he says. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So he's saying your works are going to be tested before God. And, and he talks about building that foundation. And in verse 12, he says, the judgment of works will not be based upon quantity, but quality. That's important. Because we live in a world today where we think that if we do more, it's, it's, it's better. That's what God wants. I hear people say that all the time. I used to hear it all the time, especially, you know, when I was a younger minister and, and, and a lot of times we'd have an altar service or something. And when I hear people say, Lord, I'm going to pray more and I'm going to give more and I'm going to do this more and I'm going to do this more and I'm going to do this more. And, and it, it's not about doing more. It's, it's doing with what you have quality. That's what he's talking about. Okay. It's not about how much gold and silver and costly stones or wood, hay, and stubble. It's a matter of quality versus quantity. And, and if a believer is doing the will of the Lord, then that's what God asks you to do. If he's given you one talent and you use it to 100%, then you've been just as faithful as the person who was given five who used it 100%. God cannot expect you to do more than what he's given you. He's just looking for those who will be faithful with what he, they have been given. Because one day you're going to give an account for those things and how you spent your time. Um, while the believer's sins themselves are not brought out in this judgment, they, they do play an indirect role in this judgment. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times Christians will play games. They'll, they'll uh, think they're, they're getting away with hidden sin. And if there's hidden sin, then you're not interested in the things of God and you're using your time versus for, for not for good, not for eternal things. And so, again, it's, it's not based on our salvation. Jesus did that, but it is based upon our works. And verse 13 reminds us that our works are going to be tested by fire. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire, the very presence of who he is. I, I, I don't know how that works. I, I mean, I cannot tell you that God's going to literally just, what is he going to drop you in fire? I don't think. I think that in his presence, the things that, that we've done for him, the things that we've how we've been faithful with what we've been given will stand and everything else we'll see it just flash before our eyes almost like flash paper and it'll be gone. I don't know. All I know is that regardless of how little wood, hay, or stubble there may be that we've, we've, we have in our life that it will be burned up. Now some people will say, does that mean we're not allowed to have fun? Does that mean we're not allowed? No, because everywhere you go, you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. The difference is whether those things are controlling your life or whether you have those things under control. Do you understand what I'm saying there? So, you know, some people would think, well, we can't laugh, we can't be joyful, we can't enjoy one another's company, we can't go on vacations, we can't do this. We can't. That's not what God is saying. He's just saying, 
there's a balance. And which way will the scales tilt when you stand before God? Okay? And then finally in verses 14 and 15, it says the results of the judgment are giving. And the results of the testing is going to be rewards or loss of rewards. Now, somebody would say, well, how can you lose something you never had? You lost something you could have had. Come on now. I don't know about you. How many of you have ever learned about a great deal the day after? And you went, oh, man, if I had known, I would have jumped on that deal, right? Does that bother you as much as losing something? Almost. I could have had that. I think there's going to be a lot of sorrowful people in heaven. You say, oh, no, the Bible says there'll be no sorrow. Oh, in the end, when everything was restored, there'll be no crying, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be more pain. But I have a feeling there's going to be at a moment in heaven when we stand before God and we see the wasted time, the wasted talents, the wasted gifts that God has given us that were not used. There may be a moment of sorrow. That's my thinking. Again, this whole idea is that we will be judged for rewards. So what kind of rewards? Well, the Bible speaks of crowns, that we will receive crowns. And there are at least five different crowns spoken of in Scripture. There may be more. I have not found them, but I know of five specific ones that we're going to look at real quick tonight. But something you need to understand is the reward is a crown, but there are two types of crowns that are mentioned in the Scripture. The first crown in the Greek is the word diadem. It means a kingly crown, okay? It is, it is the crown uh, that, that a sovereign, a king, a queen, or someone of royal positioning, this is the crown that Jesus wears. When he's coming back, it mentions the crown that he is wearing, okay? There's another type of crown that's mentioned in the scripture, and it's a Greek word meaning stephanos. And it means a victor's crown or an overcomer's crown. And these are the crowns that are available to believers. These are the rewards that are available to us. In other words, there would be a crown for a king. How many of you can picture that in your mind? Full of jewels and gold and precious stones. That's reserved for royalty. The crowns here are like the crowns of the early Olympics where they would take leaves and wrap them in a wreath and a crown and place them upon their head. Um, they were a crown signifying you were a victor, you, were, you won, but it was nothing like the crown of a king, okay? And so let's look at these five different crowns in Scripture and what their purpose is and the Scriptures for them. And, and here's the thing, it's not like you can only have one. You can get them all, but there's a cost for each one, okay? And you say, I don't even care if I get a crown. You will by the end of this t tonight. You will, you will not have that attitude, I guarantee you. So let's look at the first one. And it's in the Bible says it's the victor's crown 
or a crown of incorruption as found in scripture. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 25, it says, Know you not that they that run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. Even so run that you may attain. So notice what he's saying here. He says, everybody that runs in the race, they're all running, but only one gets the crown. He says, so how do you run? Run that you may attain. In other words, that is your goal, to gain that crown. And every man that strives in the game exercises self-control in all things. And now they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. So what is this talking about? This is a crown given to those who exercise self-control and gain mastery and victory in their spiritual life. It is for those who have gained victory over the old sinful nature. Now, the thing about this is sin has been defeated by Christ. But so many Christians fail to understand that truth and, and the power that is there in that truth. And so they find themselves always battling sin, it seems like, when what they're supposed to do is run the race after God, run in Christ, and, and, and overcome these things that are in our lives. Now, when we start off as a very young Christian, a baby Christian, our will and our emotions and our choices are usually very poor because we're not scripted in the things of God's Word. We're not... We haven't had experience yet to know what God's word says and how we're supposed to live. But God doesn't save us from the pit of hell so that we can stay the way we are. He wants us to change. He's come to change. The Holy Spirit has come to take up residence to clean house. Okay? So it, this speaks of those who have learned to live a spirit-controlled Life. Now, how many of you know that's not always an easy thing to do? The Holy, how many times has Holy Spirit tried to deal with you about something? And we're like, we don't want to hear that. And we tune it out. Understand this. It may affect you getting that crown. And again, you're saying, I don't care about no crown. I just want to get to heaven. I just want to see Jesus. You just keep thinking that way. We're going to change that in just a minute, okay? So an overcomer's crown. The second one is the crown of righteousness. Crown of righteousness. Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which... The Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not me only, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. Notice what he's saying here. That he said there's coming a day that God is going to give a crown. He says, but not just to me. He says, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And this crown is for those who have kept the faith both doctrinally and morally in spite of adverse circumstances. If there was ever a time for the church, God's people, to live righteously, to live morally, and to take a stand and go against the stream of culture, this is it. 
Why? Because those who have loved his appearing, we've lived for the appearing of Christ. The Bible says he who has this hope in him purifies himself. So we have lived for that. We are looking for the return of Christ, looking for his return by living with sound doctrine, waiting for his return. A life lived in conformity with the New Testament with the expectation of looking for him to come back. That is the crown of righteousness, okay? The third crown is the crown of rejoicing. And this crown is reserved for those who win souls for Jesus. Now, man, that'll 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 be put at the top of the list for the light and loss, light and life, or light and life evangelism class. Man, if you win one person to Christ, you lead one person to Christ, you have secured a crown. The crown of rejoicing. How many of you have led one person to Jesus Christ in your life? Well, the majority of you have. Well, I can tell you, you got a crown. You say, well, how many does it take? One. The Bible says he rejoices over one. The lost. He, he left the 99 to go seek the one. Right? That's what it's all about. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19... For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of glorying, or not even he before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? In other words, <laughs> when you see that person that you've won to Christ and you're, you're leading them into discipleship and following Jesus, you say, my joy is seeing you grow. My joy is seeing you begin to grow in your walk with God. And, 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 and I rejoice over you with that. Philippians 4 and 1, it says, Therefore, my beloved, and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. It is a crown available to all those who do the work of evangelism, and the fruits of their labors are seen in people coming to the Lord through their works. You want a surefire way to lay up treasure in heaven? Tell people about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. And understand this, that, that you may say, well, I've talked to people and I've not led anyone to the Lord. But can I tell you there's a process in that? Because for some, it's sowing seed. And for some, it's watering the seed, and someone will come and reap. But the person who reaps could not reap without the person who watered, and the person who watered could not have watered without the person who sowed the seed. And so you may not see the person come to Christ, but if you sowed the seed, you will have a part in that crown of rejoicing. Now, I want to just say that because I felt like somebody needed to hear that because you might be witnessing and sharing your faith and not seeing people come to Christ, but you have a part in it. The apostle Paul even admitted it. He said, he said, some water, some plant, some water, and some reap the harvest. There's a process there. And, and, and I'm convinced there'd be a bigger harvest if we plant more seeds. Come on now. 
The fourth crown is the crown of glory or what is known as the elder's crown. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse, verses 2 through 4. It says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. This is a crown that is reserved for those who faithfully feed the flock of God. Now listen, a lot of people say, well, I'll never be a pastor. I'll never be someone behind a pulpit. I didn't say that. I said, this is a crown that is reserved for those who faithfully feed the flock of God, the people of God, the children of God. It's available to pastors and elders and others who feed the sheep with the milk and meat of God's word. You may have one person that you're ministering to, you're breaking bread, you're opening the Bible on a weekly basis with them or, or uh, you know, twice a week or whatever. Or you may be doing it over the internet and, and however you're doing that, but it, you're ministering to them and feeding them the truth of God's word. If you are faithful in doing that, there is an... In elder's crown, there is this crown of glory that is reserved for you. So please do not think that you're not available to get that crown. You are. You are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. If you feed someone the word of God and help them understand it and break it open for them, then you are eligible to receive that crown. And the last crown is the crown of life, or what is known as the martyr's crown. Now, I said everybody can get each crown, but can I tell you there's only one way to get this crown? And it's funny when I always talk about it, people go, I don't want that crown. It's mentioned in two different passages of the scripture. Really, I want you to think about it in this way because it has two applications. And the first one is in James 1 and 2. And it is a crown for those who endure trials. Now see, we think of martyrs as those who have given their life. And that's true. But the Bible says that we die daily. And that when we take a stand for God, we are being crucified as Christ was crucified. Jesus says, that if they crucified me, they'll crucify you. They, they put me on trial, they'll put you on trial. Okay? So you are enduring hardships. You are enduring trials. Look what it says in James 1 and 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation... 
for when he has been approved, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to them that love him. There were temptation is trials, difficulties. Blessed is the one who endures the trials, endures and gets through it. He says, for when he has been approved, in other words, when you stand before God and he finds you faithful in that, he said, you'll receive this crown of life. And then in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, it is forgiven for those who suffer martyrdom for their faith. Look what he says. Jesus says, fear not the things which you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation for 10 days, but you faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So notice again, it's about enduring. It's about being faithful unto death. When I, years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Vietnam and meet, I was there for about 10, 12 days in Vietnam and we met with the underground church in Vietnam and it's still that, this way today, but the, the churches that were approved by the government had to be registered by, to the government. And there was always a government agent or so within the service to make sure that the minister wasn't saying anything that they shouldn't say. But there was an underground church. And we were told once we crossed over into Vietnam, don't say Jesus out loud. Don't mention the Bible. Don't say Christian. Don't do anything because there are people everywhere and the minute they hear it, they don't care if you're foreign or not, they will arrest you and you'll go to prison. And so we had the privilege one, one day, uh, we spent several hours traveling. I won't go into all the details about that, but it was 4.30 in the morning when we left and it was 108 degrees already. And we left for several hours drive and then we got on a ferry and then we got back in the van and then we got on this little tiny boat, long tiny boat that was sitting like three inches from the water and went up the Mekong River and, and we were searched by the police on the river and, we were, and, and then we went off on a side river and we went behind a Buddhist temple uh, and we met in a, in a grove of, of dragon fruit and we met some some Vietnamese people from North Vietnam who had been traveling for two days. And we had service out there in this orchard behind this Buddhist temple. And I'll never forget these young people, young adults. And they, they prayed, they asked, they said, would the men of God from America pray for us? And there was about 12 of us on the trip, most of us all from Louisiana. And uh, he, they said, well, what is it you need prayer for? Pray that we would be found faithful preaching God's word. And then the minister from Vietnam, who was the head of the Assemblies of God there, he told us, he said, you need to understand something. These 25 or 30 young adults have all just been released from prison for their faith. And we were like, what? Many of them had been in prison for months, 
some over a year for their faith. And the amazing thing is that you could not be ordained a minister in that affiliation of the Assemblies of God unless you had spent time in prison for your faith. And when you were in prison, you had to be found faithful and that you were witnessing and winning people to Christ. And I thought, if they made that a, a requirement in the States, pulpits would be empty. And every one of them had just been released from prison. And they were asking us to lay hands on them that they would be found worthy to continue to preach the gospel. And I remember weeping uncontrollably and thinking, you don't need us to lay hands on you. We need you to lay hands on us. When was the last time you were threatened for coming to a church or for using the name of the Lord? He says, endure. If you endure, you will receive this crown of life. Now, I mentioned before, these, this is five crowns that I have found in the scripture. There may be others. I, I'm not aware of any others, but they may be there. But there are at least these five things, and, and, and it deals with the, the eternal things that we are sending ahead, okay? The things that God would consider gold and silver and precious stones. And, and there, there's a personal and there is an eternal importance on the crowns. And this is why I say when people say, I don't care about rewards, I don't care about crowns, I just want to get to heaven and see Jesus. And I say, you don't understand what the Bible teaches. In Revelation 3.11, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to that which you have, that no one may take your crown. Now, how many of you think that when Jesus tells you, hang on to your crown, that means you got to get it, and then you got to hold on to it. You don't want anyone to take it away. In Revelation 22, go all the way back to the end of the book in verse 12, and it says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So notice what he says. He says, in the beginning, he says, I'm coming quickly. Hold on to, hold fast to that which you have, and don't let anyone take your crown. And then he says at the end of the book, he says, I'm, cold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So Jesus talks about rewards. For you to say, I don't want a reward, then you're telling Jesus, uh, whatever you're bringing is not worth it. I don't want it. I'm not telling Jesus I don't want anything. Come on now. I want everything that Jesus has for me, okay? The importance of this declaration or exhortation that Jesus makes is seen in the phrase there of the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ serve a threefold purpose, okay? The first purpose is this, that the crowns relating to our good works have an eternal purpose. 
That's what we're talking about. We're doing eternal things in a temporal life. We only have a certain period of time here on earth. What are the eternal things that you are doing? Okay. In Revelation 19, verse 6 through 8, look what it says. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of many thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reign. Verse 7 says, let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now I want you to look at this. Here is what he's saying. He's saying, I heard this great sound. There's a rejoicing sound. Now he's hearing it. And he says, let us be glad and rejoice and give who? Him the glory. For he has, he has, he's coming and his wife has made herself ready. Okay, look at the next verse. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints. Now in Luke's gospel, we are told a parable that portrays this concept of rewards in the thousand-year millennial time a term of Christ again the rapture takes place at some point here before the tribulation period the judgment seat of Christ takes place and from that we read here that her the bride has made herself ready and she has been clothed with the righteous acts how are the how are those acts determined as righteous we stand before God and we give an account of our lives, what we have done since Christ has come into our lives. And our gown, that wedding garment that we receive, is the righteous acts that we do here on earth now. Okay? Once the judgment takes place, at some point, there's a wedding in heaven. And it is the bride, and it is the groom, and immediate family. Father, Holy Spirit, and the saints of God that are there can see it. But there's going to be a feast that's going to come when Jesus Christ comes back to earth and we come back to earth with him right here at the end of the seven-year period of time and enter into this thousand-year period where Christ is literally reigning on earth in Jerusalem on the throne of the King of David. Now, Luke gives us a gospel account of this concept of this thousand-year period of time. When Christ comes back, he establishes a literal kingdom here on earth for 1,000 years. And look what Luke's gospel says. Luke chapter 19, begin with verse 11. It says, And the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them the story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. That's, I think that's incredible because how many times did the disciples ask Jesus, when are you going to start your kingdom? When are you going to set it up? I'm going to sit on your right side? No, no, no. I'm going to sit on his right. Remember, they argued about that. Okay? And even after Jesus rose from the dead and, she, and appeared to them, before he goes up into heaven in the book of Acts, what's the first thing they want to know? Are you going to establish your kingdom now? 
That's all they could think about because that's what they had been taught. When Messiah comes, he's going to build his kingdom. They couldn't see this overall picture. They could not see that it wasn't just the Jews because the Jews had rejected Christ as the chief cornerstone. And because of that, it says we who are not Jews, we as Gentiles are now given the opportunity to be grafted or adopted into the family of God. They, they couldn't understand that. But he's saying this, he said he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. And he said a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. And before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and dividing among them 10 pounds of silver each, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. In verse 15, it says, after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money, and he wanted to find out what their profits were. And the first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made 10 times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you. Notice he didn't say the much. He said the little. In other words, that which I gave you, you've been faithful with it. And so you will be governor of 10 cities as your reward. That's, that's a key point right there. And look what it goes on. It says, and the next servant reported, Master, I've invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said, you will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and kept it. Said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. And I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops where you didn't plant. And the master replied, you wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest off of it. Then turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. And what does he say? He goes on and says, yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now the parable shows people giving money. And we can look at it, that as giftings, abilities, and talents, and time, and spiritual gifts, and how they used it. And the result being that when the king returned, he examined what they did with what he had given them, and while he was gone. And the accounting resulted in rewards and losses. He said, I've multiplied it 10. He said, I'm going to make you governor over 10 cities. I've multiplied it by five. I'm going to make you governor over five cities. I took your money, and here's your money back. And God said, you are wicked because I gave you something and you did nothing with it. And he said, I've taken it away. Now give it to the one who made it, multiplied it 10. 
And notice the response of the people. They were like, well, he's already got 10. Why are you giving it to him? Because he was faithful with it. Has nothing to do with the fact that he made 10. He was faithful with it. And what he's saying, from those who do nothing, even what little they had, I will take that away from them. So there's a second purpose in this judgment. And that is of rewards and crowns. And it is to determine degree or position of authority in this millennial kingdom. When Christ comes back and we come back with him, it says that we rule and reign 1,000 years. I think that's why that parable is so interesting because he says you've, been, you've multiplied the money by 10, now you're going to be a governor over 10 cities. You multiplied by five, you're going to be a governor over five cities. Notice what he's talking about. A governor is a person who has a position and he makes rules. He carries out executive orders, okay? We can understand that, right? And this is what he's talking about. When Christ comes back, this is going to be a literal kingdom here on earth. It's not going to be like floating in the sky, playing harps and all that kind of stuff. It's literally coming back to earth. There will be people who have survived through the tribulation period. They will go into this thousand-year period of time when Christ is on earth, setting up two governments. There'll be one government for Gentiles and one government for Jews. And Christ will be the head of those. And there will be under him people at different levels of authority here on the earth. Why? Ruling and reigning. Reigning, speaking of position, I reign as king, I reign as queen, I reign as a, a you know, duke, or I reign as a prince, I reign as a governor, I reign as whatever. It's a position. But ruling has to do with executing law, executing judgment, executing rules. Why? Because the people who will be living during that period of time, even though Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and there'll be no demonic temptation, no, no demonic oppression or anything like that, the people on the earth will still be human and have a sinful nature. And so there will still be a need for government and, and things like that because the people who are living on there, they will still be working. They will be having families. They'll be raising families. And whenever there's families, there's going to be issues. Come on now. You know that's true, right? And so this is what he's talking about. He says, he says the rewards are not just about hearing well done. It's determining degree or position of authority during that thousand-year period of time when Christ is here on earth, in his government on earth. There will be people at very local levels like we have now, and there'll be people at higher levels and people at state levels and people at you know, national levels or regional levels. Their government will take place over the earth under Jesus Christ. In eternity, all believers will be equal, but not so in the kingdom. And what I mean by that is because we will have different positions. We'll all be saved. We'll all be born again. We'll all be a part of the bride of Christ. We'll all be, but those who have been faithful with what God has given, he says, I'm going to put you in positions of authority. 
And in that regard, they're not equal. Does that make sense? Can you understand that? So it's not about outdoing somebody else. It's just being faithful with what God has given you now. If he's given you one thing, be faithful at it. He's given you two things, be faithful at it. And sometimes you start with one, and when you're faithful, God gives you more. Be faithful with the more that God gives you, okay? Revelation 20 and 4, it says this, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was committed to them. In other words, the judgment seat was committed to them. And, and after the judgment seat, after they were judged, remember their works had made, made their clothes for the wedding. He said they've been committed, they've been judged, and they've stood, and, and they've been tested by fire, and they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Okay, And the third purpose of the crown is not just eternal. and the third, the, It's not just um, to determine degrees of rewards. But to me, this is the most important thing. And the third purpose is seen in worship. And this is the part to me that undermines anybody who says, I don't care about rewards, I don't care about crown." I just want to see Jesus. Then you don't understand this part. In Revelation 4, verses 4 through 11, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And it goes on to say, and from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the fourth creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, remember, they were around the throne, and they had crowns. Look what it says. They fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. The crowns were given to these people not for boasting of their accomplishments. Here on earth, we win ribbons and we win trophies and, and all of those things, and we go around boasting. I won first place, second place, third place, and healthy competition's good, that's fine. But the purpose of getting our crown is not to boast. When we get to heaven, you're not gonna go walking around going, I got three, you only got one. Or I got more jewels on mine than you do. 
That's not what it's going to be about. It's not about us. It's about worship and the one that is worthy of all of our worship. It says that they, they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. They're doing that to honor him because that if it hadn't been for him, they wouldn't even be there. That's what they're saying. We wouldn't have, never mind have crowns, we would have never been able to come to heaven. We wouldn't have a throne. We wouldn't have the ability to be in your presence if it hadn't been for your sacrifice and you laying down your life. And the crowns were laid before him as an act of worship. And how sad for the one that would come before Jesus without something to put at his feet. I've told this story and I'll tell it every time I teach this class. But I, I remember where I was living when I was in first and second grade. I lived in Hampton, New Hampshire, right near Hampton Beach. My dad was stationed at Pease Air Force Base nearby. We moved a lot, and so friends were very few, especially up to that point in my life. I, we moved a lot, several times in one year. And so this was my first time going to elementary school and I made friends that were in the neighborhood that lived on the street where I was at. And, and I remember one of the boys in my class, I remember his name. His name was John because my younger brother's name is John. And he was having a birthday party and I knew being the oldest of seven kids and I knew that my mama always said, no, I couldn't attend a birthday party. And it wasn't because she was being mean. We just didn't have the finances to buy birthday gifts every time you got invited to a birthday party. And I came home so excited because he was talking about the games that we're going to have and things that we're going to do and all of that. And that he was right up the street. Mama didn't even have to drive me anywhere. I could go right down up the street to the top of the hill to where he lived and I came in and told my mom he's having a party. I got invited, got an invitation, a real invitation. And she said, no, you can't go. You know the rule. And I'm like, but mama, I asked him, and he said I didn't have to bring a gift. She said, son, you don't go to birthday parties without bringing a present. And we don't have the money. So just tell him thank you, but no thank you. I, I, I was so upset, and the next day I went to school and I told him, and he goes, man, he said, you don't, we don't need no gift. He said, just come. We're going to have cake and ice cream and play lots of games. And I got all my hopes up again. I was so excited. And I came back and I told my mama, mama, he said, I don't have to bring no gift. He just said, just show up. We're going to eat cake and ice cream and have all kinds of fun and stuff. All my classmates are going to be there and stuff. Mama, can I please go? And she says, son, you can't go without a gift. And I guess I just beat her down enough or she had enough babies pulling on her to worry her anyway because I was the oldest of seven. We're only nine years apart. So, you know, from youngest to oldest, I guess. And then she said, fine, go. But I'm telling you, you don't want to go without a present. So I came to school the next day and told my friend, I get to come, I get to come. And I all week long looking at the calendar, marking it off for Saturday. That's going to be the party. You know, and I remember when it came time for the party, running up the street, running up a little hill, 
to, to where his house was, running up to the hill to his house and knocking on the door, and there was other kids going in, and so I just went inside, and kids were all putting their gifts on a table over there, and man, they had big old cake, and there was ice cream, and they were playing games, you know, and stuff. Got in there playing the games with all my friends. I was having a grand old time. I forgot all about the fact that I didn't have a gift, but it didn't matter, man. I was at the party, you know, and getting cake and ice cream and having fun with all my friends. And then it came time to open the gifts. And the mother said, she said, I would think it would be great. John, why don't you come sit in this chair and let the kids one by one go get their gift and bring it to you. And the sickness I felt in my stomach because I didn't have anything on that table. And as each kid started going over there, I kind of walked over towards the table, you know, like I was going to get a gift or something and realizing there was no gift. And one by one by one, they're making a line and going up to give him his birthday gifts and he's opening it. And the last one's taken off the table and I'm still standing there and I don't have a gift. And I'll, I will never forget it. I'll never forget it. It was almost 60 years ago, but I will never forget it. I was so embarrassed and I was so ashamed because I didn't have anything to bring him. While everybody was getting in line to take his presents and everybody was yeah that's cool that's a great present whatever I remember I slipped out of the house and I ran crying all the way home and I came in the door and my mama was there and she saw me crying my eyes swollen shut and crying and she said what are you crying about what's wrong what happened and I told her the whole story and she said son that's what I told you you don't go without something to give. And I'm telling you, the first time I read this, the first time I understood that the crowns are not for me. The crowns are to come before him and to bow my knee before him and cast them at his feet in worship. For anyone who said, I don't care about crowns, I don't care about rewards, I just want to see Jesus, you're going to be just like the little boy who went to a birthday party without a gift to give the host, the one who is being honored that day. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. To stand empty-handed when we had a lifetime to invest God's gifts to us would literally be a spiritual tragedy. It does impact our position and our responsibility in the thousand-year reign of Christ, but that's not what it's about. It's not about having proved faithful so I can be a governor over ten or five or one. It's not about boasting on myself. It's to have something to cast at his feet in worship. 
to say, I did not earn this crown. I am not worthy of this reward. It is unto you, Jesus. And we cast the crown at his feet. So let me ask you right now, how are you living your life today? Christian friend, when you stand before God, will your life's works be burned up with fire? Or will they be refined as gold and silver and precious stones for the crown that you will cast at the feet of him who is worthy of all praise and glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord God, that the revelation of your Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the simple and plain truth. Lord, sometimes we get so distracted that we think that if I just can survive, that's what it's all about. If I can survive this day, if we can make it through this day, God, you understand our frailty and that sometimes that's how we get in our minds and in our hearts. But Holy Spirit, help us to understand that every day that we have, every moment that we have is not about us. It's not a matter of surviving. It's about doing the work of the kingdom here on earth, being faithful with what you have given us. What is the, the small thing that you've given to us? What is the one gift or the two gifts? Or what is the talent or what is the ability? What is it that you've given to us that, God, you will hold us accountable for when we stand before you? And we may have wasted time. and Those days are gone. We can't make them up. But Father, you are able to make the change in our hearts and our minds so that we face the coming days. And every day that you give us, every day we wake up and take a breath, that God, let us be found faithful in doing the work that you've entrusted to us. That when you come, we will not want to hide, but we will be looking for your return rejoicing in your return and being found faithful in that which you have given us. For we desire to hear, well done, good and faithful one, not because of a crown that we'll wear to boast, but of a crown we will receive that we can lay at your feet in honor of who you are. We pray this. In your holy name, Jesus, amen and amen. Okay, so any questions or answers about any of this? And we'll keep it to, the, yes, ma'am. Okay, I'm just confused. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, what we're seeing there is a picture of the fact that when they are casting their crowns, it is a picture for us to understand that they receive their crowns in the same way we receive crowns. And so 
there will be a time when we will go before God, when we will have that opportunity before the Lord that, in other words, it's a picture of what will take place on an even grander scale, that the, the, all the sounds and the, the colors and the wonders and everything that's going on around the throne. It, it is a picture for us to understand what's going to take place um, when we get a crown that we'll be able to offer it in worship and before the Lord. So it's just a picture for us to understand this truth and concept. Because the, the disciples earn a crown, but they didn't get a crown because Jesus picked them out. They'll get a crown for the same reasons we get crowns. We'll be faithful in what we've done. We will receive crowns. And, and the idea is that, again, it is to be used in an act of worship. It'll be a reminder of the fact that he's the one that made it possible that we have these crowns. Does that answer it? Well, what you're seeing here is a picture. John sees a picture of 24 around the throne, okay? But we, what we do know is that when we come back to earth, those of us who have been stood before the judgment seat, and depending on that, we will have authority and we're going to rule and reign with him. So it, it's not just the 12, the 24 around the throne that you see there. Again, that's a picture of them casting their crown. It's a picture of the purpose of the crown is in the act of worship. How many of you, know, you don't need a crown to be able to rule, right? And, 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 and to reign. You, whether you have a crown, a, a, a crown on or not, if you are a king, you're still a king with you, whether you have the crown or not. So it's just a picture or an insight for us to understand that the crowns are a part, not for wearing that we'd say, look at me on my throne and all of that stuff. It's they cast it at his feet because he was worthy of worship. So the Bible says we who come back with him, we're going to rule and reign on earth. We're going to have places of ruling and reigning on the earth all over the globe. All of his people are going to be ruling and reigning with him. So it's not a matter of us having a crown to rule and reign. I mean, I mean, you can have a, a deputy pull up in an unmarked car in plain clothes, and, but he's been authorized by the parish government um, to, as a deputy, and he can show his shield or his badge and let you know who he is. And, and I'm just trying to say and point out that it, it's not a matter of having crowns and having thrones around the throne because when we come back to earth, it's not, we're not talking about up in heaven. We're coming back to earth and we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ here on earth for, for 1,000 years. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, the judgment takes place and the eternal perfect state takes place and we're no longer ruling and reigning after that because there's nothing to rule and reign over. Did that answer any of your questions? Yeah, John just reporting what he sees. He sees 24 thrones around the throne and the elders that are on there. And then as the, the beast and, and the, 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 the creatures around the throne begin saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who was and is. And that's, that's worship. It's glorifying God. It says, and they took their crowns and cast them before him. It was an act of worship. That's all it is.
people who are ruling and reigning over, will they be, is it definite that they'll be cast into the lake of fire or is it they might be like saved? Let me say it again. Uh, the people who rule and reign over that survived the seven year tribulation, will they like definitely go through the lake of fire? No, 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 no. Those who survived the tribulation, and we're going to study a portion of that next week. I, you, I usually break it up in two parts, but the second week is Easter, and we're not coming back Sunday night on Easter because nobody's going to come back. <laughs> I'm not that dumb. So we may have to split it, or I may have to try and summarize it into one week, which might be dr like drinking from a fire hydrant. But anyway, at the end of this period of time, three-fourths of the earth will have, population will have been destroyed during the tribulation. But there will be people on the earth and nations of the earth. The Bible speaks of the sheep and the goat nations. And those who were compassionate to the message of God and the, and the people of God, they will enter into this thousand-year period of time, and they'll live. They'll have children. They'll work. They'll do all those kinds of things. They're not going to be judged at that point. Uh, it is at the end of the thousand-year period of time that Satan is loosed out of the bottomless pit, and the Bible says that he tries to bring the nations in rebellion against Christ, but before Satan can even get too far, Jesus, by the word of his mouth, destroys him, throws him alive into the lake of fire, and those would be considered the wicked. Though, imagine this. Jesus has been... You've been alive on the earth... Jesus is alive in flesh on the earth, and yet you've come in rebellion against him. You're not going to heaven to stay. You're going to heaven for the judgment. And those who appear at the great white throne, only those, let's, let's put it this way. Your question was about the people. Those, anyone who appears at this, this judgment here will end up in the lake of fire. Christians are rapture taken out. There will be tribulation saints, those who will come to Christ during the tribulation period. They will be born again by the Spirit of God. They will give their lives for Christ. They will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. And it says, and we who are in heaven... And those tribulation saints will rule and reign together for, for 1,000 years. So people are not judged until the end of that 1,000-year period. And those who, are in who have died in rebellion against God, those who are alive in rebellion against God, will be taken up to the great white throne judgment, and they will be cast alive into the lake of fire. But people will survive the tribulation, and those people will live through the thousand-year period of time on earth. You got a question? Um, okay, so let's say I bring someone to Jesus and I get the crown of rejoicing. And then I bring someone else to Jesus Do I get like a jewel or something on the crown, or is it just nothing else? I have no idea, my brother. <laughs> Honestly, I think so. 
I think some people are going to have crowns that are simple, and others are going to have crowns that are embedded with stone after stone after stone. But that doesn't mean that they're greater because they may have had a greater opportunity. I don't know. It may just all be one crown, and it's a crown of rejoicing. It's a crown. Of, it's the soul winner's crown. I don't know. There's nothing that says in the Bible, and again, one of the very main major rules of Bible prophecy is where the Bible is silent, you should be too. We can speculate, but we don't know. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I knew that was going to come up. That's a whole separate teaching altogether. That's a whole separate teaching altogether. It really is. I just have to tell you that. I mean, there's no, there's no quick way to explain that. But uh, um, we may touch on it maybe a little bit later. Is that okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I knew when I read that, somebody's going, oh, I said, somebody's going to bring that up. <laughs> I know, I know. You were going to ask that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, all right. Well, we had that, nipped that thing in the bud. <laughs> and... Um, but no, it's a very good question, and it's something I didn't understand for years until, honestly, until probably seven or eight years ago when I really did research it out and see what the Scripture says about that. And it's a separate teaching altogether. It really is. That's not necessarily Bible prophecy. It's just that it's a part of who God is, the nature of God, and what does it mean by the seven spirits of God? You know, I mean, that throws you because we're like wait a minute there's one holy spirit and one jesus and one father but what it's talking about there is that seven seven distinct characteristics and nature of god that are that can be defined and when you see it and all in all it is it is the nature of god and uh, but it's a it's a very in-depth bible study and maybe something we can do sometime be good anybody else That's like, you're talking about the woman and the sun and the moon and the stars underneath? Yeah. Yeah. It's a sea. Yeah, it's a moon. Whatever. <laughs> you know, you know, like when you only see part of the moon? You know, yeah, the crescent moon. Anybody else? Well, I hope this helps you understand a little bit about this. Because it may seem simple, but it's, it's very, really, it just changes your whole outlook about how you live for Jesus. It is, it, it, you can't get a day back. So at the end of the day, what did I do today that was of eternal value? And what did I do today that was not of eternal value? And how did the scales come out? If the scales are always coming out, it seems like it's this way and temporary stuff and all my life and time is spent doing this and then something's not right there has to be a balance in that okay bless you thank you for coming and like next week we're going to start on the tribulation period and we'll see how do we decide to go about doing that one all right amen